Well, good morning. This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel according to John, starting in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all the blessings that you give to us. God, we pray for the blessing of the women at their retreat, and I pray that they are just so spiritually blessed on, at this time and just come home so full of your spirit. And God, I pray for Femi as he preaches your word. I, I pray that he just proclaimly um, exclaims your gospel. And thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Good morning again for those who I've seen already this morning. This morning is Genesis 28, and I trust that Aaron preached Genesis 27 last week, and so I'm going to introduce 28 by way of recap, briefly, of 27, if you remember the events of that. Chapter begins out with an aged Isaac believing that the end of his life is near, and so wanting to bless his firstborn, the firstborn of his twin sons, Esau, his second, is Jacob. He calls him and he says, um, my time is near, let me bless you. But first, I want you to fix me some steak. Why don't you go and hunt, bring me back this meal, and then we can talk business. And Rebecca, overhearing this, not wanting her favorite, Jacob, to miss out on the blessing, hatches up a scheme where she's going to have Jacob dress up as Esau. He's going to go in and get the blessing and, and then leave. And we see God's hand in this, God's providence, as this scheme works out, at least in the short term. And Jacob is leaving narrowly as his brother Esau is coming in from the field. And we see two very strong but distinct reactions. We see that Isaac is stupefied. It says he shook violently while Esau is filled with dismay. Right? He believes he's been cheated a second time. If we really think back on it, he really wasn't cheated the first time. At least I imagine that Aaron pointed it out, but sitting under Marty's teaching last week, he pointed out in Hebrews how it says that Esau was ungodly because he sold his blessing for a meal. And so it was, in his sight, his 
his blessing, he despised at his birthright all to have a full belly. So he wasn't really cheated the first time. Certainly Jacob took advantage of him, but he, he sold himself out. But nevertheless, he's dismayed. And in his brokenheartedness and anger, he plots to kill his brother, Jacob. Now, Rebecca, she hears of this and demonstrating herself to be a quick-witted woman, she calls Jacob. She says, you need to leave and go to my brother, your uncle, and let things blow over. Blow over. Your brother is going to cool his jets, and then you can come back. And as we will see in subsequent chapters, that things don't work out that way. And so with that being said, I'm going to read Genesis 28, starting at the first verse. And why don't you turn with me there? Genesis 28, starting at verse 1. Says then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings, that God Gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in the way, excuse me, in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I may come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God, 
And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. A lot going on here. I'm one who firmly believes that you can't have enough prayer, so let's turn to the God of the Word to help us understand the Word of God. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege of sitting under the teaching of your Word, including the one who preaches it. May you open the book to us and make it live to us. Show us great and wondrous things that we do not know and make our Savior live to us. In his name we pray. Amen. So here we see in the first verse, the first five verses of 28, Genesis 28, that in order to save his life, Jacob is sent away to find a wife. Now that may be cute on the head of it, but this is serious business. We see in the first four verses a father's blessing and his instructions for the road. Isaac tells Jacob that he is not to take a wife from the women of the land. And instead, he tells him where he needs to go to find a wife. I think the first thing we need to take note of here is that with blessings, there comes a charge. If we are honest with ourselves, and if not you, then certainly myself, I will say that I am often one who wants the blessings of God without the commandments of God. I want the goodies without the guardrails. But if you look at the opening verses of Genesis leading up to this point, specifically Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17, you see God interacting with Abraham, and indeed there is blessing, but there is also expectation. There is no free lunch with the Lord God. I mean, the Lord Jesus himself said, if you love me, speaking relationally, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I think that's something important that we need to be aware of. Now, that being said, I find it interesting that all of a sudden Isaac has wanted to bless or now wants to bless Jacob when he couldn't really give a care about him before. And I think there's some possible reasons for this. Got to ask ourselves, why is this? Why the turn of events? It's possible that he wanted to play the role of a peacekeeper. I don't really think that's it. If you see Isaac's interactions up to this point, you can see that he has always inordinately I think if we are honest, we would say that he has favored Esau. So I don't think that really matches what has gone before. We could possibly say that maybe he wants to keep Rebecca happy by ensuring that Jacob doesn't marry one of the women of the land, as the injunction that he stated makes clear. If you look at Genesis chapter 46, for one, Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Really, Rebecca? You're going to lose your mind just because your son married someone that you didn't like? Isn't the purpose of your life to glorify God? You could see, too, that Rebecca is bound inordinately to her favorite son. Her focus is not the glory of God. Her focus is what's my favorite son going to get out of it? But even going further back to Genesis 26:34, we see both Rebekah and Isaac lamenting the fact that Esau has taken Canaanite women to be his wives. More of that to come later. So those are good reasons, but ultimately I don't think that's what's really going on here. I think what's going on is that Isaac knew that he had favored Esau inordinately. 
and in doing so that he knew that he was sinning against the Lord. Now you're going to ask me, Femi, where do you, you get that from? I don't see that in the text. Well, I think there are a couple clues here. I think the structure of the text gives it away in Genesis 25, verse 22. Right? This is where Rebecca, pregnant with the twins and aware of the friction that's going on in her, she goes to the Lord to inquire. Now, in other passages of Scripture, if someone wanted to know something from the Lord, they would just pray. So, for instance, um, we can think of Samuel's mother. Like she prayed. She didn't go anywhere necessarily. I mean, she went to the temple, but um, she didn't go to someone to pray. But remember, during this time, there's no prophet in the, in the way we will come to understand in the past, right? This is also the patriarchal period, right, where the head of the household will serve as the prophet slash priest of that household. So, for example, we see, if you know the story of Job, Job goes to the Lord and he intercedes for his children because he thinks maybe they have blasphemed the Lord's name when they were partying together. So the text would seem to indicate that Isaac acted as the intermediary when she went to seek the Lord. But let's say that that's wrong. right? Let's say that she did go to the Lord directly, and he did, in fact, reveal to her what was going to happen with her two sons. Many of you ladies in here would find it hard to believe that she would keep something like that to herself without telling her husband. It just seems very unlikely that the weight of that, that God is going to prefer one of our children for his purposes among the other. More than likely, you would share that with your husband. So he is aware of what the Lord has said. And he has decided, nevertheless, to pursue his own ends in Esau. Now, I, I think it's important for me to digress here and say in light of this. Um, it was at our last pr prayer meeting. I think it was last Monday morning, and Marty and Aaron and... Tyler and I were talking about this, and Marty posited the question, how would we react if the Lord revealed to us that in, with, in the lives of the sons that our wife was pregnant with, he was going to choose one over the other? And I didn't have an answer at the time. But as I left that morning thinking about that, I realized that there was only one answer to that question, and that is to pray. You see, in Genesis, excuse me, I always say Genesis, I mean Psalm. In Psalm 127, starting in verse 3, it says that, behold, children are a gift from the Lord, a heritage from him. So it doesn't matter their character, their characteristics. It doesn't matter what they have done. The Lord has given us our children as a gift. But if you back up to verse 1 of Psalm 127, it says, those who build a house, if the Lord doesn't build the house, they build it in vain. And simply to say in that context that if, the, if we are not seeking the Lord, for his hand on the lives of our children. That doesn't mean things are going to turn out the way we want. That doesn't mean that the end state that we have desired will be realized. But better to walk through whatever may come with the Lord's help than trying to go with it alone in our aspirations to raise our children. But we don't see that in this text. We don't see Jacob. It's possible, but the text doesn't record any time that he has interceded for his children except when Rebecca was barren. And so I think it's important to point that out, that we know that God has favored Jacob, that he is a chosen one, but that doesn't mean that they could not have interceded for the Lord on behalf of Esau. And so bottom line is, Isaac 
presumably knew what was going on, knew what the Lord had chosen and predestined in the life of Jacob. And so we see that Jacob obeys in verse 5. He's probably sufficiently humbled like his father has been. He, he is out of options. He has nowhere to go. I'm sure some of us have heard that quote, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Maybe we've used that for a guest that stayed over long at our house. Right? Right? We jokingly say that you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I think we need a new quote for Jacob. His needs to be, no, you do have to go, or you may die here. And so he leaves, and he obeys. He's out of options. He has nowhere to go. There's no scheming, at least at this point, he heads out. Now, one commentator pointed out something about Jacob that I had never noticed before. And they said, what would it have been like Jacob? We know of his description in earlier chapters that he was a man of the tents. He was a homebody. What would it have been like for him to have to be sent out? I know what that's like. I know it. 20 years old, after graduating from boot camp, I was home for 10 days before I went to school of infantry. And the night before I had to leave, I was packing up my uniforms to go, and I was getting choked up emotionally because I was having to leave home. And so my dad came in and he asked me, son, how are you doing? And I said through some tears, my back was to him when he came into my room, I said, um, I said I'm doing okay. And he said, well, what's wrong? He could tell I was emotionally distressed. And I said through my tears, who's going to take care of you and mom? Now, that was, I was 20 years old when that happened. Jacob, at this point, is 77. Now, I won't belabor all the mathematics of how to figure that out, but he's a 77-year-old man, probably never gone far from home, being sent out. Not entirely his fault, but he wasn't innocent either. You know, there may be some of you here who have had to leave home. Perhaps you had to leave home and it wasn't your fault. Maybe it was your fault. Maybe you made a mess of things. But know this, if you have sought Christ and put your faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, the Lord has promised that he will never leave you nor forsake you. As a matter of fact, and Psalm 27, King David says, When father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me in. We see in verses 6 through 9 that while Jacob obeys, Esau does it his way. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that good old Frank Sinatra song, I Did It My Way. I'm certainly younger than most of you, but I have some gray in my beard, so I, I, I do know that song. Esau does it his way. Doesn't this remind you of Lot in Genesis chapter 13? If you remember the situation where the herdsmen of Lot and Abraham are, are arguing over land, and Abraham says, whoa, the land is before us. If you choose this parcel of land, I'll go over here. If you choose this parcel, I'll go over there. And it says, Lot lifted up his eyes, right? And he looked at the valley of Zoar, I think it was, and how lush it was and how well watered he was. Well, that's similar to Esau here. They looked with, with fleshly eyes, right, without any sort of spiritual insight. It's interesting, I thought, one commentator said of Esau, said that Esau may have been slow-witted in realizing that his wives 
were not popular with his parents. Another said that uh, the text subtly exhibited the intellectual dullness of Esau. Well, you didn't know that your parents hated your wives? Well, that may be too strong a term. Gave them heartache? Maybe, but there's more going on here than, you know, I'm, I'm, a, little, I'm a little slow. I'm not the sharpest tool in the toolbox, right? There is godless perspective. And I was thinking about that myself as I was driving to work one day working on this text. I was thinking, how often do I look at the circumstances of my life the challenges that I face with human eyes, trying to find the solution in my own strength. And I resolved to try to make an effort to seek the Lord in those things, in those challenges, in those difficulties, even in those blessings, to see them as the Lord would see them, as he would have me see them. And so Esau, trying to get back into the good graces of his family, he, he utterly fails. He marries into the line of Ishmael, which is an already rejected line. Sadly, all he does is, in addition to that, he increases his guilt before the Lord, as John MacArthur said. He already had two wives and godless wives at that, and now he's added a godless, another godless wife from a rejected line, moreover. Poor Esau. There's no indication from the text that Esau's decision to pick up another wife made things better. He is a rejected line, marrying into a rejected line. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Contrast that with Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, that say, trust in the Lord with all your might, and do not lean on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Notice with me now in verses 10 through 17, Jacob's dream. He has a dream, and he, in it, sees a ladder, angels descending on it, and the Lord God at the top of the ladder. But I want to camp out for a few moments, if we will, as we look at some of the characteristics of this ladder. Notice how the ladder reaches up to heaven. Think back to the Tower of Babel in the early chapters of Genesis, right? the epitome of man-centered salvation and effort. That couldn't reach to heaven. So this is a provision of the Lord. Notice how the ladder is the only avenue between heaven and earth. There's no other way up. There's no other way down. Notice the simplicity of the ladder. Insofar as we know, it's uncomplicated, it's unimpressive, it's plain. We have no description of the ladder. Notice the activity, the order of the activity of the angels. They are ascending to God and Descending from God, they are involved in God's work. I won't have you turn there, but in uh, Psalm 103, verses 20 through 21, it says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. And then lastly, notice who stands at the top of the ladder, the Lord God, Yahweh himself. This is none other than a representation, a symbol of the Lord Jesus. Now you might ask, Femi, how do you get there? Well, think of this. Just like the ladder, the Lord Jesus is heaven's provision. For nothing could reach heaven except it was provided by heaven. 
as the latter is presumed to be without external and obvious beauty. So Isaiah, speaking in Isaiah 53, verse 2 of the suffering servant says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I want to draw your attention to the fact that the latter connects heaven and earth. Is not this the Lord Jesus, God the Son incarnate in human form, who through his perfect life, death, and resurrection opened the way back to God the Father? Shortly before he went to the cross, he said to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 6. Just as the angels have been sent forth to do God's work, so the Lord Jesus said of himself, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 6, verse 38. Note, isn't it fitting that in the reaffirmation of this covenant that God gives this dream to Jacob, that he promises that through his descendants, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. By this he meant his greatest offspring, the Lord Jesus himself. And how this greatest offspring, who thousands of years later would say of himself, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John twelve thirty-two. Notice with me the theme in verses 13 through 15. God identifies himself. He is the one who speaks. Isn't this similar to God's preamble in the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God is saying here that I am the Lord and everything that comes after, everything that you will hear from me, you must pay attention to and believe. God promises Jacob land. He promises him countless offspring. He promises to bless the world through his offspring. Notice that it is the Lord God who initiates and makes contact, speaking and reaffirming the covenant and its attendant blessings to Jacob. God is the source of blessing and encouragement. Jacob is the recipient of encouragement and blessing. Speaking of God being with Jacob in Genesis 28, that great Victorian preacher of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, had to say this about God being with Jacob. This mercy was brought home to Jacob at a time when he greatly needed it. He had just left his father's house, and he felt himself alone. He was coming into a special trial, and it was then that he received a fuller understanding of the privilege God had in store for him. I have tried to plumb the depths of these words that I might explain them, but they are too full. I defy anybody to measure their height and depth, their length and breadth. That God should give to Jacob bread to eat and clothing to put on was much, but that was nothing compared with, I am with you. That God should send his angel with Jacob to protect him would have been much, but that is nothing compared with, I am with you. Excuse me, my allergies are going crazy. When God is with a person, there is a familiarity of condensation that is altogether unspeakable. It ensures an infinite love. 
God will not dwell with those he hates. He puts away the wicked of the earth like dross. He says to them, depart, I never knew you. But to each one of his people, he says, I know you by name. You are mine. And more than that, I am with you. As a man delights to be with a friend, so are the delights of Christ with the Son of Man, whom he has chosen and redeemed by blood. I am with you means practical help. Whatever we undertake, God is with us in the undertaking. Whatever we endure, God is with us in the enduring. Wherever we wander, God is with us in our wanderings. Now, I have to ask, when the end of your days come, as they surely will, when you stand, when I stand to give an account before the Lord, as we surely will, what will he say to you? What will he say to you? Will his response to you be, depart from me? I never knew you. Or will he say to you, you are mine. I know you by name. We see next that Jacob is terrified by God's presence. His newfound awareness causes him to reassess his surroundings. How does the awareness of God's presence in our lives cause us to reassess our surroundings, our lives? Does it? And if not, what does that say of you? What does that say of your so-called faith in the Lord Jesus? Again, could this be that you are expecting blessing without demands? For surely the Lord God does make demands on our lives. We are imbued with a special duty to bring glory to his name. In verses 18 through 22, we see how Jacob worships. He erects a pillar to the Lord. He pours oil on it as an act of consecration, setting it apart to the Lord. He renames the area from Luz, which means house of refuge, to Bethel, house of God. He has personalized his encounter with God. It's not just something to be dreamed or, in our case, a uh, a sermon to be heard and then we walk away and we think that God will not expect us to do anything with what we have heard. He makes a vow unto the Lord. Notice the components of this vow. Essentially, they boil down to two things. There is a spiritual commitment. He said, if God keeps me and gives me food to eat and clothing and brings me back to my father's house, he says, then the Lord will be my God. It's interesting. He still thinks he's in a position to barter as if God wasn't the one who called him and said, this is what I'm going to do. And inherent in that is, this is what I expect of you. But moreover, he makes a physical com commitment. And this is what I want to camp out on. Right? His physical commitment, he says, I will give you a tenth of everything I own. Now, I'm not here to preach about tithing. That's, that's a whole other sermon. But it begs the question, in what ways have we made special 
physical commitments to the Lord. What I mean by that is, in our profession of faith, does our practice match our profession? In the way we spend our time, in what we commit our money to, in our workplace, in our entertainment, on the highway, in our families. When people are around, when nobody's around, does your life show that it is committed to the Lord? Do our lives show that? I confess, mine doesn't always. And how sad is that? But we thank God that in the Lord Jesus, every moment of his life was dedicated to pleasing his father. Do you keep the standards that the Lord has set forth for us in his word? Let's be honest, I imagine you don't either. But thank God he has given us the Lord Jesus in his high priestly prayer. John 17, he said, Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. Where we have failed, past tense. Oh, and never mind, do fail, present tense. The Lord Jesus has not failed. And the word tells us we have an advocate to the, with the Father. Thank God and praise him for that. So lastly, I ask you, Have you made a commitment to follow Christ? Does your life show it? May we recommit ourselves anew. Because surely the day comes, is coming, we will, we will account. We will give an account. It's a sure thing. You may not agree with me, some. But let's look at this logically. We both can't be right. Either you are right, and I'm wrong, or I'm right, and you're wrong. But we both can't be right. If you have not committed to Christ, why not? It is imperative that you do so. Your very soul is at stake. Just like Noah entered into the ark and was saved and everybody else was destroyed, so the Father in his kindness has given us an ark, the Lord Jesus, who bled and died for us, and yea, rose again, and moreover sits at the right hand of the Father from where he comes to judge both the living and the dead. Now is the hour of decision, not tomorrow, not after my sermon, not at Sunday lunch. Now, let's pray. Father, we Lord, we thank you for the blessings we have in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that the new covenant was ratified in his blood so that ours would not have to be shed. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to assess our lives in light of the truth that we have heard today, even the one who preaches it. 
that we might recommit ourselves to you anew, Lord, and by the enabling of your spirit and your word, go forth and bring glory to your name and honor to the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.